Um, and for the last 17 years or so, I have watched NCIS religiously, the whole franchise. Um, and I don't just watch it once, like when I finish the series, I start again. Um, so I know the story intimately. Uh, and I, I love it. I love crime shows. But recently, I was reading a book about storytelling. And the author of the book said that every crime show ever follows the same plotline. And I thought about that a little bit, and I thought, actually, they're right. The scene is set, a crime is committed, usually in the opening scenes, then the crime is investigated, leads come up empty, there are red herrings, then usually in the last five or ten minutes of the show, the real killer is revealed, um, they might get caught in the act, and then a chase ensues, or a, a gun battle, the tension is resolved when the killer is caught, and then in the last scenes you see the detectives kind of kick back in the squad room after a long 45 minutes of crime fighting. Now, of course, if you watch crime shows anywhere near as much as I do, you know that this is the way it works. It shouldn't be too much of a surprise to you. And yet, since reading that book, something's really been bothering me, and that is that even though I know exactly how it's going to turn out, I can't stop watching. Season after season, episode after episode, series after series, I can't stop watching crime shows. I love them. But do I think that Gibbs and the team are somehow not going to be able to solve a case and it will end up in the cold case files? Of course not. I know they're going to solve the problem, not the, the uh, crime. And then I was thinking, well, maybe it's the overarching stories that keep me coming back, like the romance between agents, like will they or won't they get together, or maybe it's the um, season-long hunt for a mole in the agency that keeps me coming back. I thought, no, it's not that either, because those storylines are just as predictable as the episode-after-episode storylines. And so I've been really considering what it is about these stories, what it is about this narrative plotline that keeps me coming back for more. A really simple explanation could be that I love mindless entertainment. That I know what's coming, it's not too stressful, I, like, I love just that like, mind-numbing, kind of same, same, same all the time. But I think on a deeper kind of meaning of life level, there's something in stories that resolve like this, whether the crime is solved or the guy and the girl finally get together or the earth is saved from impending doom, that speaks to our human desire for resolution to our own story, where one day everything in our lives will be just as it should be, that they'll be put right. We're in a series at the moment exploring this idea of story, and whether you've ever considered it or not, stories are at the core of how we see the world. And perhaps in the past we've written them off as something that's just for kids or just for mindless entertainment purposes, but more and more people are coming around the idea that stories or worldviews or meta-narratives are how we make sense of the world and what we live out of. The author who um, messed with my head about the plotline thing, his name is Mike Cooper, and he puts it this way. He says, stories help give us a sense of place. In other words, they ground us or help us locate ourselves. He goes on, they stir our imaginations and help us to experience love and betrayal, hatred and compassion that might otherwise be foreign. They prepare us for experiences like love or help us process things like sorrow or suffering. The way we understand our lives and our relationships, our past and our future, is all tied up in story. Your past is not just a set of facts, it's a story that you tell. And your future too is a story, not one based on memory, but one based on hopes and anticipations and things that are going to happen. So our, um, our idea or our uh, kind of argument in this series is that the Bible too is a story, that it's a meta-narrative or a worldview 
or a universal story that offers a way of making sense of the world. So it's not just a nice book that was written about some stuff that may or may not have happened a long time ago. It claims to be a worldview story. And it's a story of God who is involved in the world for the redemption of the world. And if we read it well, it's not just a story about God, but it's a story that we are invited to be involved in. A story that calls for our participation, for us to be a part of it. So perhaps unsurprisingly, the Bible follows the same storytelling pattern of any good crime show or really any good story at all. And that is that the scene is set, then a conflict or a crisis or a key problem that needs to be solved is introduced. The conflict gets worse and worse and worse and worse until it reaches a climax or a resolution. And then we wait with anticipation to see how the resolution plays out towards the end. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to continue to unpack this narrative in what we and others call the six acts of the biblical narrative. Um, and if you haven't been here the last few weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the first two sermons in this series, because as with any good story, the acts build upon one another and kind of all make sense as a whole. But here's a quick recap of what happened last week. So in Act 1, we saw that out of darkness and chaos, God creates everything that exists and he defines what is good. He creates humans from the dust of the earth and calls them the very image of God. And he sets humans in a garden called Eden, which means delight. This is a story set on earth with God, humans, and creation as the key characters who live in harmonious relationship with one another. And in the garden, all was good. It was very good. Things were not perfect, maybe in the way that we modern Westerners think of perfection, but they were good, very good. And Adam and Eve were invited to move the creation project forward. The task they were given as God's image bearers and co-creators was to extend the boundaries of the garden until Eden covered the whole earth. I think that's a pretty cool job. There were four key relationships established in the garden as well. The first relationship was between God and humans. God made humans and breathed his own breath of life into them. So in the garden, God and humans live in close proximity. God walks with the humans and they share in this beautiful, unobstructed relationship. The second relationship is humans' relationship within themselves. This one may seem a little odd, but in the garden, humans experienced wholeness within themselves. Their self-image was complete. There was no sense of shame or fear or anxiety. The third relationship was humans with each other. God said it's not good for people to be alone. And in the garden, humans lived in harmonious relationship with one another. And the fourth, again, this one might seem a little bit odd to us, but God set humans and creation in relationship. And in the garden, both humans and creation flourished because of healthy relationship between them. So at the end of Genesis 2, we see creation exactly as it should be. There's this sense of completeness or wholeness, whole relationships between God and people, between people and themselves, people and people and people and creation. But in Genesis 3, that Dalit just read for us, this all falls apart as a central conflict is introduced into the story. And I think this shouldn't be a surprise to us. We all know from our own experience of the world that it is deeply wounded, that the world is not like it was in the garden. So the story in Genesis 3 can help us understand what caused it to be that way, to understand why our experience of Earth isn't like Eden, and to help us understand where the story is heading. So all great stories are driven by a central conflict or crisis of some kind. And Act 2 of the biblical story is when the conflict is introduced. 
And if you've been around church for any length of time, you've possibly heard it referred to as the fall. Um, but we've been using Clarice Paulson Nampajimpa's paintings to frame our storytelling. Uh, Clarice is a Wapri woman, um, and her paintings are in the Yundamu Baptist Church. Um, and the cool thing about her storytelling of um, the biblical narrative is that she actually has two paintings for this act. Uh, so we're going to start with the first one. Uh, so if you want to go to the next slide, Jack. So this is called People Rebelled Against God. Um, and at the top, you should be able to see um, three kind of half circles or U-shapes connected um, in a lighter color. That is to represent God, um, the Trinity, so Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and there's a couple of like, darker lines moving down towards two U-shapes that are kind of pointing sideways. Um, the representation of God having created the first two humans, Adam and Eve. Uh, but what you might also see is some lines moving away from those two black people down towards the bottom. And there's this black line at the bottom, and the two people are there with their backs to God, um, showing the rebellion or um, the fact that the humans have turned from God and gone their own way. Uh, so Clarice uses rebellion um, as the frame, uh, framing title for these paintings, and I really like that. So I'm going to use rebellion instead of the fall for this, um, this act. So we're going to keep that picture up um, as we talk a little bit more about it. So understanding the conflict is key to knowing where the story is heading. Uh, so what is the key conflict in our story? Well, up until now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. And God has set before Adam and Eve a beautiful garden full of trees of which they can eat, including the tree of life. They can eat from the tree of life. And there's this one single tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which they've been told they can't eat. And so now the humans have a choice to make. Will they trust God's definition of what is good and evil, or they seize autonomy and define it for themselves? So Genesis 3 opens like this. Now the serpent was more crafty or cunning than any of the wild animals God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? The snake tells a different story or a different worldview narrative about the tree and about the choice. Now, I should say at this point that nothing really prepares us for the snake being introduced in this story. So if you're wondering, who is he? Where did he come from? Why is he here? You are in really good company. Um, but as with many stories, we don't get all of the details tied up in a nice, neat bow at this point in the story. The narrator actually doesn't tell us where the snake comes from. He just says that he is. Uh, so we kind of need to sit with that for now. Um, and if a talking snake weirds you out, that's totally cool. It is a strange thing to have in a story. But maybe just park that kind of weirded outness for a moment and go with me. Uh, I want you to think about what the snake is. Like, what is a snake? A snake is an animal. It's a creature. It's part of creation. And if you remember from Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were created to rule over every living creature that moves on the ground. So when the snake says... Did God really say that? You won't die if you eat from the tree. You will know good from evil and you will be like God. And they listen to the snake. A reversal of order is happening. The humans let the snake rule over them rather than them ruling over the snake, which is exactly the opposite of what was supposed to happen. And the serpent says that the fruit will make them like God and that they will know good and evil. And again, if you remember Genesis 1 and 2, the irony here is tragic. Because we know that the humans were made in the image of God. They were already like God. And they were already given what they need to know good from evil. 
They were given relationship with the one who defined what was good in the first place. And so how quickly they had forgotten that they were already like God, that they were made in his image and called to co-create and co-rule with him. So rather than trusting God, they listen to the snake, they rebel and they seize autonomy. Rather than choosing to trust God's rule and reign, they push God out and establish their own kingdom. They create a world apart from God where they can self-govern. Now, I'm not sure what you hear or what comes to mind when I say the word sin. Probably depends on uh, if you've grown up in the church and and what tradition you've grown up in. Uh, But this is the moment where sin is introduced into the story. So in a basic sense, sin is the idea that we fail to live into who we were created to be. That we fail to live into who we were created to be. In Genesis 1 and 2, humans are created in the image of God, called to represent the creator, to co-create with him, to live under his rule. And so sin is a rebelling against that. It's a rebelling against or rejecting of God. It's a choice to go their own way, which is what we would call autonomy, and to put ourselves or put themselves in the place of God, which is what we call idolatry. So sin is choosing to reject God's story and to live out of our own story to put ourselves at the center and our ideas of what is good and right above God's ideas about what is good and right. And like Clarice's painting shows, to turn our backs on God and go our own way. And this sin, this autonomy and idolatry has devastating consequences, not just for Adam and Eve, but for uh, the whole story going forward. In Genesis 2, God tells Adam that if he eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will surely die, which is a pretty significant choice. So in this story, to choose autonomy and idolatry is to choose death, to be cut off from the giver of life. And yet something strange happens. We're set up almost to think that the end of the story is coming because if Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, they die and then the story ends. And yet something strange happens. They eat of the fruit and they don't immediately die. And so what is going on here? Either God is wrong and the snake is right or we're missing something. Uh, And I was thinking about this. Since God hasn't been wrong in the history of forever, um, then perhaps we need to ask a better question of the story. Um, And I think that question is, what is meant by death? What What does this passage mean when it says that they will die? It seems that the idea of death entering into the story is the idea of breakdown or decay of what was good and complete and whole that God had made. So death should be seen as the opposite of flourishing, not just the moment of dying that we're talking about here. It's the idea that as God created everything in Genesis 1 to be beautiful and whole and complete, that is now being undone. It is now unraveling. We've been having a lot of trouble to come up with words um, that are the opposite of flourishing. So the best I can do is that it's unlife or it's unflourishing, the opposite of flourishing. It's really hard. Think about it. Uh, So we're heading in the direction of decay and death. So here we see that death, decay and brokenness are introduced into the relationships that were whole and complete in Act 1 of the story. And so the most commonly told story of relational breakdown is the one between God and people. It's the one we're probably most familiar with hearing. After eating the fruit, Adam and Eve hid because they were afraid of God. And God comes and says, it's time for our walk. Where are you? Why are you hiding? And then the humans lie when he asks them what happened and where they were. So things have changed in that relationship. 
there is a breakdown. There is a distrust because the humans embraced a narrative that said God is holding out on us, that he doesn't have our best in mind and it will actually be better if we choose to define good and evil for ourselves. And so the relationship breaks down. There's a rift created between God and the bearers of God's image and they no longer share their close, unhindered relationship. So this relationship is central to the story going forward, but it's actually not the whole picture. We also see a breakdown or decay in the relationships humans have within themselves. When they eat the fruit, suddenly they realize that they're naked and they feel shame. So shame, self-consciousness, fear of what others think enters the story. Who we are as a whole being and how we view ourselves has become fractured. Um, And I think I probably don't need to explain this too much because this is the story that we live daily. The story going forward can't just be about getting God and humans back together, getting them in right relationship, although that's really important. There also needs to be resolution to humans experiencing wholeness and wellness within themselves. So no longer feeling shame, no longer feeling self-conscious or fear or anxiety. Uh, And I don't know about you, but that being resolved feels like really good news to me, that we would live in a story where those things don't exist anymore. But that's not all. There's also a clear breakdown in relationship between people and other people. After they eat the fruit, Adam and Eve enter into a blame game of who is at fault, looking out for themselves and their own self-interest. So sin leads to a distortion in human relationships. Here between male and female, in Genesis 4 between brother and brother, we see the first murder committed when Cain kills his brother Abel. And by Genesis 6, all relationships have gone downhill between communities and nations, and it spreads out to every dimension of every relationship. And all of these breakdowns need to be addressed in the story going forward. And the fourth thing we see is a breakdown in the relationship between humanity and creation in everything else that God has made. The ground is cursed. It will be hard work. It will no longer bountifully produce what the humans need to live. They will have to do back-breaking labor in order for it to produce for them. So creation is directly impacted by the choices that humans made, and nothing has really changed. The biblical narrative teaches that the problems with creation, whether it's climate change or pollution, are all part of the sin in Act 2 and therefore need to be addressed and part of the solution for what God is doing in the story going forward. So sin has normally been talked about on a purely personal basis, about the wrong that I do, about the way it breaks the connection between me and God, about the punishment I deserve for it and the resolution that will happen for me in the end. Um, And that's not untrue, it's certainly part of the story, but what's not often been named are the other consequences, that the wrong that I do brings unflourishing, brings death and decay to people and to society and to creation. This story is not just about the wrong that we do, although it's certainly part of it, but the hurt and the harm that it causes ourselves, that it causes other people, and that it causes creation. So in an act of mercy, God expels Adam and Eve from the garden so they won't have to live forever in the broken state that they find themselves in. And in a few short chapters, things go from bad to worse. Brokenness or death we see entering into the relationship infects every relationship from here on out. Now, I don't know about you, but this story leaves me with more uh, unanswered questions than it answers any questions. Um, But I think the one thing that does stand out to me that is clear was that the rebellion was a decision for less, not more. That the humans chose less, not more. And for diminishing, decaying life over life that was whole and flourishing. 
So at the end of Act 2, um, I'm left wondering how anything good could possibly come from the mess that has been created. How will God work to restore these things? How will he possibly set everything right? Um, and those are the questions that we're going to answer as we go on in the story. But I think we should also be left wondering where we find ourselves in this story. Uh, Clarice's second painting, if we get that up on the screen, Jack, thank you. Clarice's second painting is titled, All People Are Rebels. Happy title for a painting. Um, and in this image, uh, you see now that all people in the image have their backs turned to God. Uh, there's a really interesting contrast as well between uh, like the Godhead, the Trinity at the top there being in the light and all of the people being below in the darkness. Uh, still connected to God, and, and Melinda's going to talk about next week the fact that God kept pursuing his people. Um, but it's interesting that all of the backs there are turned to God. And I think Clarice has captured something about this story that we can easily overlook. And that is that this story is not just about Adam and Eve, but that Adam and Eve represent humanity, and this story is about our rebellion too. Sure, it's a story of how things came to be broken and messed up in our world, this is also a story explaining my experience and my lived reality. And the story is told in such a way that I can find my own life experience within it. My experience of the four broken relationships and the way that I contribute to their decay. It's about me and my rebellion. It's about us and our rebellion and the way that our rebellion contributes to the whole human species rebellion and brokenness. Uh, we're hopefully going to spend some more time in another series digging into the four relationships, um, the brokenness of them and how they'll be restored. Uh, but the sharp edge of this series is about what it means to live in community as God's kingdom people, as family, as humans in relationship with one another. And I think we probably don't need to look much further than our own lives to see that we contribute to the breakdown of human relationships and human flourishing uh, with the people that we know and also more broadly in society. When we seek the good of others, when we put ourselves first, when we attempt to manipulate and control others for our own benefit, when we talk down to others, when we treat others as objects to be used or machines to be transacted with, uh, all of these things enslave people and they bring um, death and decay into family, into community and into society as a whole. Now, if God's story invites us to live towards one another in a way that contributes to each other's flourishing, then sin is the undermining, the crushing, the minimizing, the oppressing of others. It's actively harming and undermining God's good project. So in an effort to maintain our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our idolatry, putting self first, the temptation is to stop interacting with people as if they are humans made in God's image and just for what we can get out of them. At best, I think we put up barriers between ourselves and other individuals, whether it's family, friends or strangers, and also uh, between ourselves and different groups of people, whether it's different cultures, genders, ages or people of different interests. But at worst, I think our autonomy and our idolatry actively contributes to the suffering, harm, minimizing, oppressing, unflourishing, and even the death of others. It's a pretty bleak picture that we find in Act 2 of the story. Now, uh, we said this the last couple of weeks, we're not pretending at all that we don't know how the story ends. We're not pretending that Jesus hasn't come back to inaugurate the kingdom and we know, we're not pretending that we don't know he's going to come back again to put all things right. So all hope is not lost. 
And we do get to see beautiful glimpses of restored relationship in our world even today. Um, They're beautiful things to behold. And yet, we're still feeling the impact of the brokenness of our rebellion, a distortion of the way things should be, and a longing and craving for things to be better that will drive the story forward. And so jumping ahead in the story a little bit, in the New Testament, uh, we see this example of the two most unlikely people groups to be reconciled. It seems like in that time, there was nothing that could bring the Jews and the Gentiles, two uh, different cultural groups of people, together. And yet Paul says that in Jesus, the barriers between these groups of people are broken and that there is a path for reconciliation. And the implication in the story is that if Jews and Gentiles can be brought into right relationship, then there is no division that in Jesus cannot be overcome. Whether it's a division between individuals or races, genders, cultures, different socioeconomic status, think of any group. In Jesus, there is no barrier that cannot be overcome. So the question is, how do we respond to this? If this is a story that we are called to live out of, and the central conflict of broken relationship points towards the resolution and restoration of relationships, then how do we live in such a way that brings about restored human relationship now? This is our invitation, to bring healing, wholeness, and flourishing into the world, and to bring healing, wholeness, and flourishing into our relationships with others. To live in such a way that gets us to turn outwards towards others, rather than having the full focus on self, and on placing ourselves at the the centre of all decision-making about what is good and right. And so the question I have for you this morning is, what are we to do? Um, And I have a few suggestions um, that it's going to require a little bit of reflection from you. Uh, And the first is around reconciliation. So I want you to pause and consider for a moment, where do I contribute to relational objectification? In other words, where do I treat people as an object to be used or a machine to be transacted with? When do I use people as a means to an end? Just take a moment to um, consider that. Where do I treat people as an object to be used? I know for me that when I'm in a hurry, it's easy to see anyone who I would consider doing menial labor for me uh, as a person to be transacted with. So whether it's um, the cleaners um, at my workplace or the person serving me at the supermarket, it's really easy for that to become a transactional relationship. Um, And it probably happens all the time in different relationships, depending. Um, And so I guess the question is, how do I contribute to someone's unflourishing when I don't treat them as an image bearer? And what small steps could I take to not treat someone as an object? How can I get to know the people who I come into contact with in my day-to-day, even if it's just a short, short interaction? Something to think about. Uh, next, maybe consider a personal relationship in your life that is broken or decaying. Now, this could be in your family or in our family here or in one of the other spaces in your life. But who comes to mind if you were to think about a relationship that's fractured? I think the unavoidable challenge in this story is to work towards reconciliation in that relationship or to act in ways that's going to bring life, not death, to that relationship. Um, And I do want to acknowledge that is really hard. 
Um, it's not definitely not an easy thing to do, but I think it's an unavoidable call or challenge that this story leaves us with. I don't know about you, but my temptation is always to be the one that holds onto the grudge or the hurt the longest, uh, like some sort of competition. Um, but this isn't me living out of God's story. That's me living out of the narrative of self. So even if it's a small step, what can you do that's going to bring life to a fractured relationship in your world? I think the third level of um, relational decay here comes in when we start talking about uh, systemic relational decay. So what systemic relational decay do we contribute to? You might be wondering, what does that mean? Well, this happens as a result of the way we relate to a particular type of people, and particularly when lots of people act in the same way towards certain groups. So in our society, it may be particular treatment of women or certain races or certain age groups. Um, one that always comes to mind for me is the way that we often unknowingly contribute to the enslavement of people by the clothing or tech choices that we make um, when we purchase things, that actually there's someone in another country that we're removed from that we may never meet who's enslaved because of the, the choices that we make. So where are you either actively or passively contributing to systemic relational decay? And what steps do you need to take, not just to stop this, because we're not talking about just stopping the relational decay and breakdown, but actually moving towards life, moving towards flourishing. So what are the steps that we need to take to bring life and flourishing to those relationships? Again, maybe something to think about. But I also want to suggest, because um, that's coming from quite a negative framework, I want to suggest that we also consider what affirmative action we can take. So how we can choose not brokenness in the relationships that we already have. How can we invest more in the ones around us that are already flourishing? Or how can we invest in new relationships that have the potential for flourishing? So what can you do that builds a relationship, that builds someone else up, that brings them life? So for example, how can you show hospitality towards people in our community and those that you engage with in other spheres of your life? What would it look like to enter into a relationship with someone new who could use some uh, life and flourishing spoken into theirs? Perhaps a challenge is uh, if I was to ask, when was the last time that you introduced yourself to someone new here in our community? It can be really easy after a gathering to kind of group uh, with the people that we naturally already have relationships with. But what would it look like for us to speak flourishing and life into other people in our community that we maybe haven't spoken to before? So what action can you take today or this week towards someone that will bring them closer to the life and wholeness that Jesus has for them? I think life now in Jesus is both of those things, that we step into the darkness for reconciliation and that we step more into the light to bring more flourishing into the relationships that are already alive and well. The image that we are given in Act 1 of the story is a garden city where everything is whole and complete. And the vision at the end of Act 6 is also a garden city where all is whole and complete, where all relationships are restored and where people from every tribe, nation and tongue are together in right relationship with God and with each other. And the invitation or the call is for us to live into that, is for us to build for that, to partner with God to work towards that day. And so I think Genesis 3 should challenge us to consider what our relationships are like and if we are contributing to their life or their death, their flourishing or their unflourishing. 
So how are we joining with God in his uh, restoration, reconciliation plan to undo the brokenness, death, and decay that was introduced into human relationships in Genesis 3? I'll leave you to think about that. Let's pray. King Jesus, uh, we're just so thankful for you and the fact that you continue to pursue us despite uh, the rebellion, despite the ridiculous things that we do on a daily basis that bring death and decay into your beautiful world. Um, We confess um, this morning that we act in ways that are opposite of where your story is heading, Uh, that we treat others in ways that bring death and decay um, and that we're often not moving towards life in you. Um, We confess as well that at times we feel like we've had to do this on our own apart from you. Uh, So easy for the autonomy and the idolatry to enter into our, uh, even the things that we say we're doing for you, that all of a sudden when it comes to um, wanting to meet new people and show life and bring flourishing to people, that we think we have to do that on our own as well. Uh, But we know that all of this can only be done in and through you. It's your spirit at work in us that gives us the strength and the wisdom and the power that we need to bring life and flourishing into this world. And so we pray this morning that by your spirit you would show us what life and flourishing looks like, that you would lead us in ways of flourishing and life, uh, in paths that are going to bring flourishing and life to us and in and of ourselves, that are going to bring flourishing and life into our relationships with others, that will bring flourishing and life into our relationships with creation and flourishing and life in our relationship with you. Would you teach us, lead us, guide us, show us what it is like to live towards you and towards others in a way that is going to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation and to bring healing. So Lord, we pray all of these things uh, in your name, believing that you are the one who can bring them to fulfillment. Amen.